There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite the history community to march across the globe conquering falsehoods. The podcast where we shoot the nose off myth and say, not tonight, misconception. I am your regular host, Paul Babble, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow citizen of the revolution, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we have a return rage once again, our peace being shattered by one of our historians rapidly shouting, and another thing! Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard him take apart the Battle of Waterloo, and if you haven't, then it's Series 2, Episode 4. And today we welcome back the Chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Groves Charity and Founder and Presenter of the Napoleonic Wars Podcast, Dr. Zach White. Zach, welcome back to History Rage. Hello, gents. How are you doing? Good to see you again. Feeling angry? Oh, always, always. It's it's suppressed rage. <laughs> yes. I don't realise that simmering underneath this sort of gentle exterior is actually an absolute beast that will rip the head off historical myths and tear them to pieces you know in, in a very bloody fashion but that, that side doesn't tend to come out very often yeah although i say that last time i was on you basically told me off for not being shouty enough yeah well challenge yeah. accepted come on exactly oh, this is why i had to come back right yeah well we've got we've found of late actually that it's our quietest and most civil historians that have got the most rage i mean so far you are our third repeat rager following peter caddick adams and helen fry uh, two of our most kind of civil and polite that have come back. And I do believe that if you liked Helen Fry's episode out there, guys, uh, she's coming back for a third. But uh, so the last time we had you on, the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Grace charity was pretty much in its infancy. So how's that developed in the last year? Yeah, it's been really busy. We we had an incompetent, I'm allowed to rage, so we had an incompetent banking provider. Um, and I won't say more about the name of said banking provider for legal reasons, because I can't afford to be sued. But <laughs> um, yeah, thanks to the, the genius that was that organisation, we basically were forced to delay because we didn't get our accounts. But we got up and running in August, finally, after lots of screaming at um, very unfortunate complaints departments. 
Um, and yeah, we're we're busy. We're underway. Uh, we've cleaned a few graves already. Uh, mm-hmm. So we recently hit national headlines when we had the graves of five French prisoners of war restored in Hampshire, in a place called Alsford. Yeah. Our first project was cleaning the grave of Walter Burke, who was the guy, he was purser aboard HMS Victory at the Battle of Trafalgar, and he's literally the guy who held Nelson's hand as the Admiral died. So pretty significant moment in history, and his grave looked an absolute state. So we had it cleaned up uh, in time for Trafalgar Day last year, which was great because every year the the local community where he's buried um, in Woodham in Kent hold a, a ceremony, a service, and the kids from the local primary school come and lay flowers. And so for the first time in a generation, you had a situation where these kids were lining up reading books, inscription, hmm. and actually able to do so because before this point, it had been such a mess that they couldn't have read it. Um, and that's that kind of gets to the heart of what we're trying to do here, you know, yeah. connecting people with their local links to this history so that they can pause and reflect. So it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, we've got another four that we have had um, cleaned that are being kept under wraps. We've got massive projects in the pipeline that I can't say any more about to monitor expectations and maintain a kind of cloak and daggers yep. air of mystery about the whole thing. But yeah, we've got a, a lot going on. We also, um, in very kind of frenetic, no, not frenetic, but very busy conversations with uh, authorities out in Spain, and in the Netherlands, about um, nearly 100 individuals in all who need to get buried. So there's lots going on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's keeping me busy. Running a charity is basically a full-time job that you don't get paid for. <laughs> yeah. So this was probably the dumbest career move I have ever made in my entire life. I don't know, though. Your place in the afterlife is assured, isn't it? Well, funnily enough, Dan Snow turned around me to me the other day Apologies for the shameless name drop. Let, 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 drop. Let, I'll just, let, just let me just pause to, and pick that off the floor. Just speaking to Dan, you know, Dan Snow. But yes, you go on. As you do. You know, you're telling me he's not regularly around for dinner, gents? But he described me as the high priest of the Napoleonic War death. And I was kind of like, it sounds a little bit culty, <laughs> but I sort of... I sort of like yeah, it, yeah. you know. I, I might adopt it. Yeah, yeah. As you know, as, as job titles go, as when you when you're in charge, choose your own job title. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. There we go. It's done. Well, you know, look at look at the head of the heralds, the dragon keeper of arms. You know, there is a man who chose a cool title. Too right, too right. High priest it is. There you go. There we go. You don't need to call me your worship, though. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very God, much. My pleasure. So let's take you from being exhausted and happy to being downright incandescent. So, Zach, you've been here before. You know the gig. What is pissing you off today? So last time I was on, I asked people to get over Waterloo, right? And this time I want to ask a very specific group of people to, with the best will in the world, just get a grip. There are a group of people, I don't know, I'm rude to start with, so this is going to go really well. I'm going to make myself real popular by the end of this one. There are a group of people out there who love to get awfully misty-eyed about a certain Corsican. They will shout, vive l'empereur, at the grave of a man who's been dead for 200 years. So how was that kind of long life working out? Go mm-hmm. figure. Um, these people idolise him hero worship him place him on a pedestal as a shining example of the virtues of humanity and all that can be achieved through arduous human endeavor they will exalt his successes with almost nauseating levels of superlatives 
and yet conveniently choose to either forget the bad stuff or explain it away as, oh, everyone thought or did that at the time, so it's okay and we just need to get over it. That That's like a whole other yeah. rant in itself. Yeah, that's but we'll the get Jimmy Savile defence right there, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it just? Yeah. Um, so, Colt Napoleon, I'm talking directly to you now, and no, I'm not even sorry. Look, we get it. Napoleon was a massive overachiever. He was mega talented. He was a brilliant general. He was a bloody genius at propaganda. And all of that is fine. But for the love of God, can we please stop pretending that the man didn't have his problems? Racist, misogynist, dictator, one of the grossest narcissists ever to walk the bloody earth. He was not a Democrat. He was not benevolent. He was not a man of peace. He was not bullied into war by evil allied powers. He wasn't selflessly working to better France for the good of common man. Napoleon looked out for one thing, and that's Napoleon. And in fairness, he was pretty good at it. But we've kind of moved on now from going on about how great authoritarian leaders are, and it would be nice to have a conversation that's just slightly better a reflection of the more complex kind of human reality. So, in short, Napoleon, not cuddly, he was impressive, but it was also a bit of a git. <laughs> right. We'll have that, we'll have that printed on the next round of merch. Yeah. <laughs> you might get a bonus mug for that, you know. Okay, right. So, I will just take a deep breath back there. Yeah. Um, that's I must say, last time I was on, you guys did not look scared. This time, you're <laughs> looking genuinely <laughs> shell-shocked. Okay. Was... You didn't see our facial expressions when Jenny Grog kicked off about the polls. That was... So, so the popular history gives us the idea of this great general then, and the master strategist, and the, the great military winner. So, from a military perspective at least, because we'll get on to the politics of it later, but we, from a military perspective at least, what isn't he telling us? It's Napoleon. It's like everything he doesn't want you to know is what just gets quietly swept under the carpet. Um, we're talking about a guy who was spectacular at propaganda. I, I'm not kidding when I say this guy was a genius with the thing. And I, I respect him for that because, my God, was he clever with it. Um, mm. This is a guy who knew how to get under people's skin. And that's what you've got to remember. He could get them fired up. He could work a room better than anyone in 19th century Europe. And that's kind of where the problems start, because you have this situation where he's able to create his own legend in a lot of respects. Yeah. And so where he's able to fire these people up, he can play on those kind of tropes all the way through his career. You've got to say, as a commander, getting people fired up is fantastic. Mm. But there is also a counter-argument to that, which is what are you getting them fired up for? And at what point are you more focused on your aims rather than what's good for your soldiers under your command who you should have just a tiny modicum, a little bit of an indication that you just give a shit about them? Kind of handy occasionally, I suppose. I mean, it, your soldiers are generally better off not dead. Yes. Right? That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the baseline. That's, um, at least not dead so, yet. It, not dead yet. And Napoleon, God was he good at battles, but there are points where he just exposes the fact that he's a bit of a twat about 
the losses. So there's a point when he turns around and he looks out over a field of dead from a battle and he says, and I'm quoting here, one night in Paris will replace them all. Those are not the words of a man who gives a toss about the number of people who've just died on his direct orders. So, you know, yeah. we, we need to, st- these are the kinds of things that we need to start factoring in. Yes. Side rage incoming here, the core system. He did not invent the core system. Can we please update the website that, that says that? Because if you put it into Google, it comes up every frigging time. He didn't invent it. A g- guy called Maurice de Saxe is turning in his grave about the fact that everybody says that Napoleon invented the core system. Maurice de Saxe comes up with it in the Seven Years' War. Napoleon's not even in nappies at this point in time. Napoleon's dad and his mum haven't even thought about the idea of having a little Napoleon at the point at which Maurice de Saxe comes up with the core system. Can I just point about, quickly ask? Yeah, yeah go for it. Because I'm not a 19th century gentleman. What's the core system? Okay, so the core system is a, a different way of organising the army that comes in. And Napoleon, in fairness, takes the concept and he makes it fly during this period. The core system is basically, you, within your army, you have a series of semi-independent forces that if they become embroiled in an engagement, can hold their own until the reserves arrive. Mm. So the British Army doesn't do this, really, until sort of the the Waterloo campaign, partly because the British Army isn't big enough to really pull together a cohesive corps anyway. But the idea is that you have um, divisions of infantry, cavalry, and artillery all together as a single corps, and so they will march as a cohesive whole when you are out on deployment. Now, before this point, what you've got is a series of separated divisions, so your cavalry divisions and your infantry divisions, and they are not grouped together. Mm -hmm. And so what this therefore means is that when Napoleon takes this idea and goes, hang on a minute, I can make this work, he's able to kind of create this spiderweb style of campaigning because he's got his little cores that he can then use to go find the enemy, start the engagement, know that they'll be able to fend off the enemy just about enough because they've got the material they need. They've got the cavalry support. So it's not like they're just infantry at the mercy of an overwhelming enemy. They've got the artillery support. And then as soon as that kind of thread is is snagged by this first engagement with the enemy, then the communications go out, look, I found them, I'm engaging them. And then all of the reinforcements can come charging over the hill, literally. Yeah. And and this, this whole army can then just descend, encircle, and envelop a force. And that's why he has these incredible kind of flying by the seat of his pants victories. I, I'm not a fan of Napoleon. You might have picked no, I'm, on that I'm getting already. that vibe. Yeah. But what I will say is that those who just claim he was lucky, total bollocks. Napoleon was not lucky. Well, it, it, no, that's not quite fair. He was kind of lucky, but he forged his own luck. There's luck in every single element of warfare. The, the, the kind of the freak chances are always going to play a factor. But you, you know, you can take the argument against Napoleon too far the other way. He's not just lucky. He doesn't blunder his way to victory, as some people have suggested. He's he's good at this kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that he's the guy who comes up with the core system, and we need to just kind of full stop and get that bit right okay he's got some spectacular successes in there don't get me wrong Austerlitz is probably the single most impressive battle of the entire age 
Um, and people always turn around and go, oh, you're so in favour of Wellington. You think Wellington's better than Napoleon? Actually, no. I would say that Napoleon is the better general most of the time. Not at Waterloo. Waterloo is an aberration. Waterloo, if you're trying to compare Napoleon versus Wellington based solely on Waterloo, you need to pick up a book and read more about the, the respective battles of these mm-hmm. commanders because that's not a fair indication of Napoleon at his best. Alcelet, Napoleon at his best, throws this incredible dummy and utterly annihilates, it's known as the Battle of the Three Emperors, he utterly annihilates the opposition. Um, it's it's staggering. And, and that's great. You know, If Napoleon stops at somewhere around like 1805, 1806, 1807, where he's fighting battles like Alcelet, Friedland, you've also got Jena and Auerstadt, that that's fantastic and you kind of go my god this guy was good but there are one or two cock-ups along the way you might have heard of a little thing called the invasion of russia yeah which famously doesn't go particularly well ever you know half a million men go in um you've then maybe got another hundred fifty thousand hundred to hundred fifty thousand in reinforcements and 10 percent get out you know the, the rest are all casualties either they've died of exhaustion and lack of food on the way in some of them have died in battle, or they've died as a result of the Russian winter, although most of them actually don't die as a result of the Russian winter. Yeah. Um, you've also got really famous ones that are kind of embedded in the Napoleonic legend. The Bridget Arkley. So you if you know about Napoleon and if you've seen picture portraits of Napoleon, you're likely to have seen two or three. One is the occasion where he crowns himself as emperor as a big F U to the Pope basically um that he invites the pope to his coronation and then goes actually you know what you're not doing the crowning i'm crowning myself and then there's this very famous painting where he then turns around and crowns josephine so that's one of the ones that you're seeing another one is him um crossing the alps and the one that if you don't like napoleon you like to point out that actually a lot of that crossing was done on a mule and not in this kind of incredibly impressive uh on this impressive charge and it's all very mm-hmm. atmospheric now in fairness part of the way across he was also on horseback so you know you can kind of just go look it's artistic license it's napoleon it's propaganda it's what he does yeah and um, war horse and, and, versus and mule is no choice at all if you're having it, a portrait not. done is it it's really not and, and let's let's allow him that kind of instagram filter ability when it comes to picking the pictures of him that everyone remembers right because hey we all do it but the other one is him in what i tend to call rod stewart mode um so there's this painting of him very early in his life at the the battle for the bridge at arclay um where he very according to the, the legends he grabs this flag and he charges onto the bridge desperately trying to encourage the men in this large last kind of do or die effort to charge across this bridge where they're all being slaughtered and supposedly, you know, Napoleon carries the day. In reality, he picks up the flag, he gets forward a few paces, and then one of his aides basically goes, what the bloody hell is he doing? And tackles him into a muddy ditch, <laughs> which again, doesn't kind of lend itself to a really cool painting. Yeah. But this is the thing that you, people love to ignore. Yes, there are some incredible successes. There are also some balls ups. And we, we just need to balance things out a little bit you know yeah okay right so let's let's move from the military back to the actual kind of civilian side of things so kyle 
Yeah, so that's that's his reputation as a general, as a military leader. But what's he like uh, as an emperor, as a civilian ruler, or a civilian leader? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you guys. The man's a dictator. Yes. <laughs> you can probably work out a lot Max, of it from Lord, that. Thank you. See you next episode. Uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for listening. Um, I mean, look, the guy comes to power in a coup. Mm-hmm. That tells you a lot about his nature. Now, important caveat, because I am trying to be fair as I go around and tear this guy a new one. There's a team of them. He's meant to be the figurehead, but we're talking about cock-ups. He cocks up the attempt to kind of make this big speech about how they're all useless and uh, everything needs to change and he's going to be the new face of things going forwards. And he almost gets mugged. The, the politicians almost tear him apart. And it's his brother who comes in and basically kind of calms the whole situation down and then orders in the army to clear the room. And uh, he acts like every other authoritarian leader of the period. And this is exactly the point and the whole of the problem. Because was Napoleon significantly worse than other European rulers of the time? No, not really. I'm not going to be here as the arrogant Brit and go, rule Britannia, Britain was amazing during this period. No, it bloody was not. Britain was not democratic. Take a look at the rotten borough system. Suffrage is based on wealth. It's not even universal male suffrage at this point. Think about how long it takes for us to actually get to proper universal suffrage. Mm. So sure, if Napoleon decides that the army just voted in favour during a plebiscite without actually bothering to determine if that was true or not, or if he inflates the returns by just slapping a zero on the end of the number of votes in favour, then is that really that much worse? Well, not massively because all the democracies are a bit shit during this period and in fairness when it comes to those websites he would have won anyway it was just about making sure that everybody saw how overwhelming the support was and just minimizing that dissent so it's it's interesting interesting you highlight that though because that was the electoral process of east germany in the cold war as well it's like you can all vote, but you can vote on these five members of the Communist Party as to which order they're going to be in. Yeah, I, I mean, it's... it's, it's... <laughs> Napoleon writes the rule book on a few of these things, and we'll get to some of that in, in just a second. Um, but for me, the thing is, you can't have this both ways, right? If you want to put him on a pedestal as this shining example of a great ruler, you can't also then say that all of the bad bits are simply about him just doing the same as other rulers of the period who we quite rightly have a problem with. I mean, there's a consistency problem here, right? Either we acknowledge the fact that he's doing a lot of the same things that other rulers of this period are doing, and then we go, actually, we don't like that. That's a bit gross, um, which is what we do for a lot of the other rulers during this period. Or we, we kind of accept that we just need to be a little bit more balanced. You know, you you can't play it both ways. He can't be perfect and this shunning example, and then you ignore the bad bits. Um, or it's a problem. Look, I'm getting so angry, I can't even form <laughs> a, a cohesive sentence anymore. You're breaking me, guys. What have you done to me? Um, and I'll tell you what, I'm not even halfway done yet. Because then we need to move on to the secret police, right? Yep. Now, he works with a guy called Fouché, who reports to him on a daily basis about even really little things. So I was interviewing someone a, a long time back now who was telling me that even if you went to the theatre, there would be people in the crowd quietly listening for indications of dissent. 
months. And and Fouché is reporting to Napoleon on a daily basis about all of these murmurings that he's hearing in Paris and across France. Um, and they are so good at it, Napoleon and Fouché, that the other European powers literally copy this playbook when the war is over. The guy writes the rule book on authoritarian crackdown. The number of newspapers in Paris drop under his rule from 80 down to four. You know, this guy is a narcissist of horrific proportions. Some analysis was done of direct quotes that he made that are taken directly from the memoirs of people who were in the room with him at the time. And you have to be really careful if you're going to try and delve into somebody's mindset historically, because obviously if you're not in the room with them, it's very, very hard to get anywhere near close to an accurate diagnosis. Yeah. But when you extract all of these quotes and then you put them through a series of diagnostic criteria that psychologists use on a daily basis, uh, and this was done by a team of army psychologists who said, look, we have to be very careful with this. But when you extract these quotes and when you put it all together, actually, he has something called, well, he demonstrates tendencies towards something called narcissistic personality disorder, which isn't just you're a bit of a narcissist. It's it's embedded in your being. You, you kind mm-hmm. of cut you and you almost bleed narcissism. And the guy just lacked empathy on a horrific scale. And then we get to the, the whole child of the revolution argument. <laughs> Napoleon's a political chameleon, right? He shifts um, the way in which he operates over the course of his life. He's not entirely left-wing. He's not entirely right-wing. I was having this argument with um, Marcus Cribb the other day, who came on and raged um, at you guys about Napoleon not being in defence, uh, Wellington not being a, a defensive general. Yes. Um, and, and I was making the point that, no, you can't just dismiss Napoleon entirely as, oh, he's a right-wing dictator. And it's not as simple as that. It's just not. He's arrested earlier in his life for association with the Jacobins, who are part of the political left. And obviously, he goes on to set up a military dictatorship that's traditionally right wing. He also sets up this very authoritarian regime. Um, but we we have kind of a, an authoritarianism in Napoleon that's sort of a, a mix of what today we'd identify as liberal and conservative views. But obviously, those those ideas don't emerge until the nineteenth century. Yeah. So they're, they're of a very different brand. When he crowns himself emperor, it's a kick in the teeth to the child of the revolution argument. He goes and ends the revolution. One of the first things he says is, the revolution is over. So this idea that he's a child of a revolution that he then ends doesn't entirely hold together. Um, all of that said, Napoleon is not Hitler. You know, Anybody who's trying to say that, oh, Napoleon's just the 19th century Hitler, I'm sorry, but that's historical illiteracy. The, the two don't equate. You know, yeah. Napoleon, for all that I don't like him, He's not one of the shits of history like Hitler. Okay. Are you sure? Sounds a bit <laughs> yeah, shit of yeah, history no, to me. I'm, I'm not can, a fan. But... Off, we can do this bit off the record. Are you completely certain? <laughs> yeah. 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 Napoleon doesn't do the Holocaust, yeah. right? So yeah. we'll, we'll count that in his favour. Yeah. I, I just love how you had to pause for like a good five seconds there. I think, is actually Napoleon one of the shits of history? No, he's not. Yeah. Genuinely, he's not. Yeah. Okay. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So, so kind of staying with that subject then and going back to a couple of the comments that you've made earlier, I think the French Revolution like all revolutions, is is supposedly all about the people. Um, and like all revolutions, it's not really about the people. Yeah. How did the French people fare under Napoleon's rule as a population? So you have to start breaking this down. This is where things really get difficult, right? And And it comes down a lot to, if you want to put Napoleon on a pedestal, you've got to make really tough decisions and have a really kind of difficult talk with yourself about what is it that you value most about the people that you idolize because if you're a bloke you're you're good you know all men are equal mm. in napoleonic france and you know thumbs up happy days that that is in for i'm being flippant that is an important step forward mm. that is the result of the revolution rather than napoleon but when napoleon comes in he runs with it, sticks with it, enshrines it into law. That's great. However, this is a big but. If you're a woman, you're quite clearly not a man. Profound thought of the day yeah. right there. But what this means is that you're not included in this all men are equal because you're a woman. Hmm. And when Napoleon institutes his Napoleonic Code, which is the big thing that everybody likes to hold up as this, his big kind of lasting legacy mm. and success and we'll talk more about this in a minute um if you're a woman you lose all well not quite all but almost all of the rights that you'd gained during the revolution it literally turns the clock back and it enshrines in law a patriarchal system literally a patriarchy um the father controls all of your property if you're a woman the men decide what happens to the child at various points in its life divorce settlements favor men mm -hmm. so if you're a woman you are worse off under napoleon to say nothing about the fact that if you have a son who goes off to war and dies that's hardly a nice experience ditto with your husband then we get into another whole kind of side rage which is slavery and i will say from the outset that this is a very easy one for the brits to get complacent about and go you know kind of bash me over the head oh look napoleon he reintroduces slavery and yes he does and, and isn't Britain brilliant because Britain abolishes slavery during this period? There's an important word in what I've just said. Napoleon reintroduces slavery. The French are like three steps ahead of us because they abolish it um, during the revolution. Mm -hmm. And Napoleon then brings it back. We don't even get anywhere near abolishing the slave trade until 1807. We don't abolish slavery until the 1830s. So we can't sit in here and yeah. be too smug about it. 
Um, then we get the, this is the side rage. Oh, it was normal for the time. Please get real. Does that mean that we just ignore it? You know, we pretend it didn't happen because everyone was at it. You know, where do you want to take that argument? Anti-Semitism has been rife at various points in history, mm-hmm. not just in Nazi Germany. We were at it in the Middle Ages, yep. for Christ's sake. Edward I literally boots the entire Jewish population out of the country in 1290. We don't look back at that and go, yeah, but never mind. It's just how the world was back then. You know, there's plenty in history that we can look at and be grossed out by and acknowledge that we're yep. grossed out by mm. it. Um, the Brits are particularly good at this. Uh, Ritzer Massacre, anybody? Yep. India, yep. 1919. If you want a Napoleonic example, I don't know, let's try the plunder, murder and rape spree that the British troops go on in the 48 hours after the capture of the fortress city of Badajoz in Spain that belongs to our allies, and yet we inflict this on the civilians in the town regardless. Um, we don't turn around, though, and go, oh, but Napoleon massacred prisoners at Jaffa, so it's all okay. Um, I mean, yeah, guys, it isn't. We've, exactly. We have always used history as a way of understanding the present. That's literally the point of history. You know, I, I don't know what to tell people. It's not just about telling fun stories. It's about how do we understand how we got to this point right here, right now. And part of that means acknowledging the really shit stuff that oh, we've done alongside some of the nicer stuff, you know. So let, let me start wrapping up this mini rage, shall I? Yes. So look, you know, saying us turning around now in, in 2023 and saying, look, by the way, can we just make sure we don't forget this really awkward bit that we all feel uncomfortable about? That's not rewriting history. That's just completing the picture. You know, there was a point in history where all we did was the rich guys at the top, you know, the aristocrats, people like Wellington mm. and the king, you know, the people who are making the decisions. And to an extent, sure, we still do that. And that's great. And that's fine. But then people turned around and said, well, hang on, what about the poor people who made up the majority of the population? You know, at the time, that was probably a dangerously radical idea. Um, but just because we turn around and say, yeah, actually, ethnic minorities, they also mattered and their experience was really quite shit. And we need to acknowledge that. That's not being revisionist. That's filling out the picture mm. in a slightly yeah. more complete way. So anybody who turns around and goes, oh, but Napoleon said it's all okay because of the time. Nah, doesn't wash with me. Um, then we get onto the soldiers in this to get back to your original question, which was, you know, how do people benefit? Well, if you're a soldier, you're fine as long as you don't end up dead. Because obviously being dead is is the yeah. less ideal um, end goal. Or disabled. Uh, or disabled, actually, is a really important point. Um, it does, Napoleon does institute the Legion d'honneur, which is great because that kind of provides support for the family. And the, um, it's worth saying most of that... It, Legion d'honneur is meant to be like everybody in society is eligible for this. And it's amazing how often, I think something like 80% of that, ends up just going to the army. Uh, and very little kind of works its way into civilian society. So yeah, you've got that. He provides employment. The army doesn't succeed in supplying its men most of the time. That's literally part of the problem in Russia. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, how do you supply an army of half a million men? It's always going to be difficult, you know. Um, uh, but if you're a, you know, if you're a military genius general, then the basic logistics of your operation is, it's like, you have one job. One job. You've got to make sure your men don't die until they get to the battlefield. Yeah, right? yeah any but, military I mean, general whose, whose army dies before combat 
needs to have a long, hard look at himself. You're being radical. This isn't acceptable no. to the cult Napoleon poll. Okay? Um, You've just got to... Look, 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 look. It's incredibly simple. You sit there and cry vive l'empereur every time I mention Napoleon and you'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, okay. And, and I, I, I'm being facetious, of course I am, but I'm not being that facetious because there is a corner of the diehards who follow Napoleon who, it doesn't matter what you say, they've got an excuse for everything. And, and this is what really boils my piss. You know, this idea that we... <laughs> uh, well, at that moment, we lost Kyle. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love that turn of phrase because it's just so evocative. Thank you. <laughs> We're now getting to the point where I'm breaking the house. Um, Good, excellent. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not even done. Um, if you're one of his cronies, happy days, happy happy days. If you're part of his family, oh my god, you'll get placed on the throne of Europe, and that's great except that you do need a little bit of talent when it comes to running a country. And a lot of his family really don't have the talent. Now, you do get promotion based on merit. That was literally half the point of the French Revolution. So he keeps that, which is good. But yeah, there's a lot of cronyism that goes on in Napoleonic France. If you marry into his family, you usually end up with like titles and and land and all the rest of it, maybe a a kingdom to rule. And that's fantastic. There is um, another side rage incoming here. So there's a guy called Bernadotte. Bernadotte is one of Napoleon's marshals, and he ends up becoming king of Sweden for various reasons that we don't have the time to go into this afternoon. But at the point at which Bernadotte becomes king of Sweden, he decides that he's no longer Napoleon's lackey, which Napoleon kind of objects to because he thinks, oh, this is going to be brilliant. I'm going to stick Bernadotte on the throne of Sweden and then Bernadotte's going to do exactly what I tell him. And when I tell him to jump, he's just going to ask how high. And Bernadotte's like, mm, fuck that. Yeah. Bernadotte has seen what happens to unpopular kings. He Just like Napoleon, actually. He's yeah. seen what happens during the revolution. And he knows that if he doesn't play this carefully, he's going to lose his own head. He's not up for that. So if you want the single greatest success story of the Napoleonic era, it's Bernadotte. Because he ends up on the throne of Sweden... And he stays on the throne of Sweden. And the descendants of Bernadotte are still on the throne of Sweden to this day. So who wins the Napoleonic Game of Thrones? It's Bernadotte. Yeah. But because he turns around to Napoleon and tells him to get stuffed and actually eventually declares war on Napoleonic France, everybody goes, Bernadotte, he's a traitor. He's disgusting. He's the lowest of the low. No, he's just doing the sensible thing and the honourable thing, actually, of ruling Sweden in the interests of Sweden. If Napoleon did the same thing, we'd be going, Napoleon, brilliant. You're quite right too. But this is the irony. Bernadotte does a Napoleon, and the Napoleon fans can't handle it. (laughs) He he out Napoleon's Napoleon, and Napoleon fans do not like the new Napoleon being Napoleonized. That makes sense my brain, but... (laughs) So we've, we've discussed Napoleon basically disenfranchising quite a big chunk of the French population in putting cronies and relatives in high positions, uh, giving very little regard for his own soldiers' lives. Um, how does he stay in power with such a list of disqualifications, particularly in a country that's famous for very recently getting rid of its um, unpopular rulers? 
brutally yeah, getting in, rid of its unpopular ugh. rulers. But you know what? In that lies part of the answer, I think. There's a lot of exhaustion, um, and Napoleon provides stability. Mm. Um, you know, I will sit here and talk about his failings all day. What I will say is he does provide stability in France, and France badly needs that. Um, when he comes in with the new legal reforms, my God, did people need that. Because you've got different systems of law in different parts of France. It's literally anarchy. Mm. He puts an end to the revolution, and everything calms down. And actually, this is one of the great ironies. If Napoleon stops in like 1806, 1807, or, or better still for me personally, because I, I dislike the, the way in which he just goes and crowns himself emperor, um, albeit with the approval of plebiscite. Um, if he stops in like just before that point in 1804, he's one of the greats of history with the important caveat of misogyny and slavery. Mm. But you don't have this situation where he keeps resorting to war. He drives the empire to the point of destruction. He inflicts these conflicts on the rest of Europe. Yes, the other allied powers give as good as they get, but, you know, he if takes two to tango. Um, so without any of that, in sort of 1803, 4, 5, Napoleon's great because he's providing the stability. He's also got the secret police. That helps massively. Um, because if there's dissent, then you know where that dissent is coming from, and that heads off the the opposition. He's also brilliant at propaganda, as I've said mm -hmm. before, um, and success on the battlefield is really powerful within that. This is why I've never bought the man of peace argument. Napoleon's good at war, and he knows he's good at war. And what that therefore means is that when he's faced with the option of keep fighting or negotiate a peace settlement that perhaps isn't as favorable as he might like he's going to take the option where he fa he backs himself mm. and thinks you know what one more victory and i can dictate far better terms and they're not gonna be able to say no because i've crushed the road mm. what are they going to do about it that's his mo he learns it in italy he carries it through um for much of his career and it ends up being ultimately his undoing um, you've got the spoils of war in there as well. You know, many of his generals are massive plunderers. Not all of them. There are some honourable people in there. Um, Oudinot is one of them. Davu is another. Frankly, they might have made better um, people to rule the country, but we'll we'll park that idea. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just because I like people who are honourable to run a country. But apparently, that's a radical. And, and dangerous notion um, for this period that shouldn't be entertained. Oh, that's, a, um, that's a radical notion, was, even now. I, I was going to say, when you, yeah. when you say this period... <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really narrow it down much, does it? Um, you've got to bear in mind he's popular with the army as mm. well. You know, why wouldn't he be? He is the guy who le literally leads them to glory. He gives them employment. No wars mean no need for a, a large armed forces, and the moment that happens... They're back to their country. The unemployment rates are, are going to skyrocket, as they do at the end of the Napoleonic yeah. Wars. Uh, and that causes economic depression and all kinds of problems in and of itself. Look at 1815, when he comes back from his exile on Elba. It's the army that flocks to him because they go, this is great. He's back. The glory days are going to return. He's going to employ us in the army. We're going to have a job. We're going to have money. We're going to go kick somebody's head in because let's face it some people join the army because not all of them by any means some people join for patriotism obviously that's a woody concept during this period some people join however because they want to kick somebody's head in and 
the army offers a, a legal means of doing that. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in 1815, this big kind of shift back towards Napoleon is basically, as Charles Ezzo argues, a military coup because the army just goes, yeah, stuff this. We'll go side with Napoleon. He's just better. And that rock solid power base is really key in terms of kind of cementing the control because if you've got a top on Napoleon, you're going to have to deal with the army. And that's a problem. You know, you might be able to create some kind of support and there are attempts to create kind of coups in in Paris itself, but there's always going to be the army. Can you get the army on side? And especially whilst Napoleon's still winning. Yeah, that's bugger all chance of that happening. Yeah. So with, with all this, I mean, Napoleon has his place in history. So what is, though, his actual lasting legacy to france rather than the propaganda yeah see this is the irony right that it, just imagine if it stopped uh he took france to a point where it dominated europe politically as well as militarily uh, he built one of the biggest european empires frankly since the romans europe is there in the palm of his hand part of the problem is that europe is there in the palm of his hand so he goes well i can dictate all of your economic policy so portugal you're closing your ports to British shipping. Don't care if you don't like it as an independent nation and don't want your economic policy dictated by me. I'm telling you what to do. If you don't like it, I'll invade you. And that's exactly what happens. Um, so you know, imagine if he stops short. I mean, Christ, he's offered peace in 1813 and rejects the peace terms. He's offered peace in 1814. He rejects the peace terms. He ends up in peaceful exile in Elba. And decides to upstate, upset the status quo and comes back uh, on what becomes the road to Waterloo. So him ending up on St Helena is literally his own fault. So he has everything there. By this point, he's even got his own dynasty sorted out. Mm. And he, he pisses it all up the wall. I don't want to tell you. you know, If he stops and considers his opinion, other nations will negotiate with Napoleon because they don't have a choice. He's too much of a threat. And by pushing things too far... He forces the Allies to keep fighting him, keep fighting him until it's Napoleon's back who's up against the wall and he's got no other chips. So what happens without that? France dominates Europe um, and because he pushes it too far, he, he squanders the opportunity. What stays, though, is the code. And this is sort of positive, but also sort of negative. Mm. Um, I've talked already, the standardization of the law, that matters big time. It becomes the basis of the French legal system, so it endures. So clearly, a lot of the elements within it were good ideas that were deemed significant and, and popular and, and sensible at the time. It gets copied internationally, which is another indication that people looked at this and went, actually, this is really impressive. But there is the important caveat to that, that it enshrines a literal patriarchy into French law, and then other nations that adopt the code and those elements of the code then pick up the same systems. Uh, to give you an example of how petty some of this was, one of the laws said that women needed the permission of the police to, quote, dress like a man. Now we're talking here about wearing trousers, that, you know, really subversive concept. Yeah, dangerous um, stuff that even the suffragettes yeah. didn't go that far. Uh, give me a vote, don't give me trousers. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was uh, one of the banners. Um, Deeds, not pants. Exactly, exactly. Um, that law was only repealed in 2013. Obviously, it had been ignored for years. Yeah. You know, women in Paris weren't like wearing skirts and, and all the rest of it because they were scared about some old Napoleonic arcane principle. But this is the point you can't have it both ways. 
and some will say oh but he didn't write that much of the code it's just got his name on it well <laughs> the fact that it's got his name on it is literally his doing actually yeah there had been work on this for a while and this is an important thing to say um but he was proud of it he called it his code i'm going to quote him directly here my real glory is not the 40 battles i won for waterloo's defeat will destroy the memory of as many victories what nothing will destroy what will live forever is my civil code he's literally owning it and if he's going to own the damn thing that therefore means you need to go yeah he owned it he was proud of mm. that and as a man of the time he was quite happy with the misogyny that was embedded in that and Ooh. we can look at that at 2023 and go well today I, I don't particularly like that and that's okay people you know it's okay yeah. to go this was good this was shit that's what it comes down to mm. um but you know if you're going to say the code is good you do need to decide where you stand on like the misogyny and the race relations aspects because basically half the population of france was literally worse off because of it what more can i say am i right in understanding as well with the napoleonic law is that as a legal concept it differs a great deal from the law that we would live under in the common law of england and wales which is i'm not a lawyer i I mean my job is legal but i i'm not a lawyer but as i understand it our legal system has to specify things you're not allowed to do. That legal system specifies the things you are allowed to do. And if it's not in that legal system, then technically you're not allowed to do it, are you? Yeah, so our legal system is really kind of complex because we never went down the sort of constitution line. And the code sort of, when other nations pick up the code, they're kind of looking at building that into a constitution. That That's kind of where they're going with with this whole thing so we we never did that we we had our revolution much earlier and so we never sat down at, there is no british constitution um and frankly i'm quite pleased about the fact that we don't have a british constitution can, can you imagine if we tried to draw up a constitution today um we struggled to leave the eu imagine now trying to to write like a whole set of constitutions and all the rest of it i'm not sure it would work well um so i'm not the world's greatest expert on napoleon's code Mm -hmm. Uh, there are people who have looked really kind of carefully at how this gets picked up and transplanted across europe but yeah there's there's a lot of i mean it tells it tells people what they can and can't do that that's that's fine and some of it's you know fine and sensible um the education reforms are less so you know women are basically told you know go and study the things that make you genteel so and again, this kind of forces women into this sort of private sphere that then dominates France and, in fairness, a lot of Europe for the the next century. And these these divisions, um, women need to stay at home um, and do the whole kind of looking after the family thing. And the expectation of the man is that the man will go into the public sphere and do manly things like politics or running a business or whatever it might be. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So that was Napoleon's legacy in France. Um, what does what does he leave behind for the rest of the world? Um, moments like this. Mm. Right? You know, the guy dominated European affairs for 15 years. People are going to be talking about him well after we are dead, buried, and forgotten. And I'm very sorry to say that, gents, but it's uh, that's, that's no slur against you, you're lovely people, but... Yep. People are going to be talking about Napoleon for a heck of a lot longer than they're going to be talking about us. 
I mean, look, he forged how we remember him. That's that's part of the, the frustration that I have, that people, if you want to rate Napoleon, fine, you go rate Napoleon. That's That's your decision. That's your right. That's your privilege. I'm not here to tell you that you're not allowed to like Napoleon. Of course you're allowed to like Napoleon. You're allowed to like whoever the hell you like. Um, but because he has forged his own um, kind of memory, this is the exception to that rule that history is written by the winners. Because he lives on post-rule, he has the time in exile to start kind of playing the world's smallest violin, <laughs> effectively, and going, oh, but it's this person's fault that this went wrong um and and that's where the myths come from he starts kind of talking to those very loyal people who follow him into exile they write down their memoirs and, and off it goes and if you're going to take napoleon at his word and this is the napoleon who's a genius of propaganda mm. you know this is the mastermind of some of the great portraits of the age the great propaganda bulletins if you're going to take him at his word then I'm sorry, my friend, but you need a lesson in in like basic historical analysis and and sifting of sources and notions of, of conscious bias, because that's all built in there, coming from the mouth of a guy who, as we've discussed, was a massive narcissist. So you get things like Grouchy's betrayal at Waterloo as one of the great scapegoating exercises in Napoleonic history. This is. I don't often like hurling insults at historical figures because if you start getting kind of insulty, then it, actually, if, ironically, if you start getting sweary, then people go, oh, look at this historian. They're clearly not able to you know, put together a cohesive yeah. argument without resorting to swear words. Piss off. Um, <laughs> but when, when Grouchy gets scapegoated for what happens at Waterloo, this is Napoleon being an absolute prick. Because why this whole Uwe Grouchy, where is Grouchy? Grouchy is exactly where Napoleon bloody ordered him to be. We, we did some of this, I'm sure, during yeah. the, the Waterloo yes. Rage. So I, I won't bore your listeners. But Grouchy is sent off with a task. He goes and fulfills that task. It's Napoleon's fault that he's sent off too late. It's Napoleon's fault that he's got the size of the army that he's got with him. So he's got a third of Napoleon's army. And you can go, oh, well, if Grouchy hadn't had such a large force, who gave him that bloody force? Napoleon. Why is Grouchy there? Because he's been told by Napoleon, go after the Prussians, who are somewhere over there. I don't know where exactly, because I haven't kept touch with them overnight. But go find them. Go keep them busy. Grouchy goes and does that. And then people go, oh, well, he should have marched the sound of the guns. But the point is, the Prussians are like eight hours ahead of the French, of Grouchy's force. What's Grouchy meant to do? Fly? I hate to tell it to you, Charleroi Airport hadn't been built at this point. He wasn't about to take like a helicopter out of Charleroi International and and just kind of parachute into Mont Saint-Jean. Wasn't going to happen, folks. Technology's a little bit a way off by this point. And this is, this is the problem, that if you're going to love Napoleon, that is fine. You do you. I got plenty of friends, very close friends, who absolutely adore the guy, and that's fine. You know, you need to make that decision on what it is about your historical figures that you like. I'm not going to judge you for that. I'm not going to dislike you for that. But if you're going to say, "Look, on on balance, I'm cool with this guy," that does also mean that you need to be willing to hear the other side of the argument, where people go, "Well, I mean, yeah, fine, you do you," but actually, when I look at the misogyny 
when I look at the racism, when I look at the suffering that Europe goes through, when I look at the scale of the death, um, on balance, I'm not a fan. There you have it, gents. Rage complete. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Yep. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. Uh, yeah, words fail me, but thank you very much for getting that off your chest. Do yeah. you feel better? Was that angry enough for you guys that, this time? That was, was angry enough. Spot yes. on. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. Mission complete. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about this period, then do listen to Zach's regular podcast, the Napoleonic Wars podcast, and you can support the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity by visiting their websites and following them on Twitter. And we will put links to how you do so in the show notes. And you can also follow Zach on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Zach, I'll probably get death threats after this. Go for it. Angry Bonaparte is going to come for me now. That's okay. If you can, if you can just equal the fallout of Matt Bone on the Spitfire, that that's that's your benchmark. Okay. Well, challenge accepted. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I am at Kyle G History. And if you're loving this, then why not join the Angry Mob on Patreon? Your £5 per month will get you early episodes ad-free, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.